Right now on Last Call, an exclusive sit down with the head of the United Auto Workers Union. Is a crippling strike imminent or the two sides come to a deal with big pay raises? Flag on the play. The Disney charter fight may deliver its nastiest hit yet for all you football fans. Speaking of the Mouse House, an unbelievable account about Bob Iger and Bob Chapek's breakdown from top reporter Alex Sherman, and it involves two showers a day. Hmm. Nine straight sessions and counting, oil prices going nowhere but up. How much pain should you expect at the pump this fall? Watch out. One of the hottest AI plays out there sending up a bit of a warning flare. Time forever on their side. The Rolling Stones are about to put a big new notch in rock history. We'll tell you all about it, all that and much more over just the next 60 minutes. So belly up or buckle up or turn it up. Last call is up right now. All right, welcome everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I'm Brian Sullivan. All right, we got all that coming up. But first up on last call is the fabled September swoon on Wall Street underway. Some of the biggest, the most popular stocks are leading a bit of a mini sell-off. You got rising yields, you got Fed rate hike concerns, higher oil prices, and more all weighing on the markets. Apple, it had a rotten day. Shares fell nearly 4%. It's worst day in about a month. Market darling NVIDIA closed down about 3%. Shares of Tesla also down. Tesla, by the way, now off 20% from its highs of the year. To put the damage in perspective, in total, those three companies, Apple, NVIDIA, Tesla, lost a combined $157 billion in market value. That's roughly like three-fourths. So far, it has been a shaky September start on Wall Street, and we're only, of course, three trading days into it. NASDAQ dropped by more than a percent. The S&P and the Dow are not far behind. So, we're going to give up the gains from late August, or is this what September does? And we'll have a nice rally into year-end. Let's talk about that and maybe a little deeper dive into Apple with our A-list panel to keep it off. Joining us now is uh, Tusk Ventures co-founder and CEO Bradley Tusk and Carson Group Chief Market Strategist Ryan Dietrich. Ryan, I'm going to start with you because you've been nailing this rally. Listen, this is what September does. Are you worried about the rest of the year? Yeah, Brian, thanks for having me. This is better off. I was on with you two weeks ago. I spilled an entire cup of water on my computer right before we started. So we're already off to a better start here, even that, if that September's a little rocky. That caused the sell-off. There you go. You blew up your computer, yeah, and that's what happens. It, it wasn't good. But nonetheless, um, helping the economy get a new computer, right? But you're right. I mean, we all know September can be rough, Brian. But what fascinated me was when we looked at it the last 50 years, when the year's down 10% or more going into the normally weak September, the drops are astronomical, like between 8 and 11% the last five times. This goes back 50 years. When you're not down 10%, like this year's not, if I check correctly, when you're actually higher 10%, usually you do pretty well in September. So again, we 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 were bullish coming into this year, come on with you all year, saying we were bullish. We said, hey, maybe some indigestion in August, maybe a little bit in September. But honestly, Brian, we're still bullish. We're still overweight equities. I know all the concerns that are out there. I think it's more just a seasonal thing. And we, we really think that this bull market's still alive and well. And there's just more positive negatives out there. Isn't September like the only month that the Dow is down more than it's up going back 100 years, Ryan? 
Yeah, yeah, it it sure is. And yeah, I think February is the only one that's got a negative return since 1950 on the S&P, at least, along with September. But again, I mean, you know, it is what it is when, when like one more real fast for you here. When you're up 10% going into September, Brian, but you're actually down in August to get a little seasonal weakness. September has been higher eight of the last 10 times going back to World War II. So again, it doesn't have to be a banana peel type of month. You just throw out like 10 RBIs all in just that one couple of sentences, Ryan. That's why we love you. I will say this, Bradley. Okay, I get all what Ryan's stats are. History is on our side. But, man, Apple down 4%. I didn't think Apple, number one, was allowed to go down. Okay? And you got stories about China's. They're going to ban iPhones from government employees. Apple is so critical to everything. Are you worried, Bradley? No, I mean, I just agree with everything Ryan said, but just to make the bear case, to make this a little more interesting, I mean, here's the things to worry about. Obviously, the Saudis and the Russians uh, on oil cuts is concerning. Obviously, the concern of, of potential rate hikes, um, China banning iPhones. The uh, trial against Google starts next week, um, and that uh, could really shake things up in terms of tech stocks. And then we have these two big IPOs coming, Arm and Instacart, which, look, I'm very hopeful for because – as an early stage VC, you know, I would really like to see there being some more liquidity uh, in the venture market. That means having more IPOs. But let's say they don't go well for whatever reason. You could paint a picture with all of those different factors as having some real risk. Um, but with that said, I thought Ryan's case. Was uh, by the way, Bradley, we've got more on Russia, Saudi Arabian oil coming up later on in the show with Halima Croft. We'll get the macro implications of that. But, you know, Apple is the top holding or top three or five holding, Bradley, in hundreds of of ETFs, NVIDIA kind of the same way. And that's been my, if, I, if somebody came up to me and said, Sullivan, make the bear case for stocks, I would say I'm worried that there's too much power, too much influence concentrated in a couple of names, and nobody cares about the other 3,000 stocks in America. Right. Look, that's what makes this upcoming trial uh, the government has against Google really interesting, right? Because Google is another one of those companies where so much wealth and power is concentrated. And the, the underlying point by the feds is that Google uses its market share to be able to pressure uh, other companies like Apple to have to make uh, Chrome their default browser. Um, and as a result, the ability for other uh, platforms and other search engines to get off the ground is really hard. Um, and so that's, you know, I, I think there's really something to that, right? As an early stage tech investor, it's basically impossible for me to invest in any company that would try to compete against Apple or Google or Amazon. Um, And and look, these are all companies that right now are still doing incredible R&D. They're producing incredible gains. But, you know, and again, Ryan's the historian here, but like history shows that every company eventually becomes slower and stagnant and bureaucratic and political and just not as innovative. Um, And it would be a lot better for the economy, in my view, if VCs like me were comfortable in seeding a lot of these early stage competitors, most of which will fail, but one or two might succeed and become the big employers of tomorrow. And so I think that you need the government to step in and make that feasible. Listen, I'd love to see somebody try to start a a, a competing phone business, right? Like, good luck against the the duopoly there. Ryan, I I feel like, you know, Apple, NVIDIA, Amazon, Alphabet, I feel like they're kind of the Tom Brady patriots, right? If Tom Brady's in there, the Patriots are winning Super Bowls. The market's going to do well. Tom Brady leaves, they're an average team, at least so far. And I do worry about if those names do not perform or outperform, 
Can those people out there watching or listening that just maybe own the market index fund, the SPY, can they still do okay? No, we, well, first off, as a Bengal fan, I got some good news today with our quarterbacks, speaking of quarterbacks. But but you talk about it here. Um, we think it can, right? If, they, if those stocks break down, of course, they're a huge part of the market. And overall, you know, people that own the SPY, for instance, would be in a little bit of trouble. But I mean, I've been coming on you for a while, Brian, saying, you know, look at energy. I know energy's got this run now. We've been saying for several months, go overweight energy. There's some potential there. Look at materials. You know, we still like small caps. I know they pulled back a little bit lately. We just like those cyclical names that say, hey, listen, tilt your portfolio that way as we could avoid a recession, in our opinion. And we talk about, you know, yields. In our opinion, yields are going higher. Why? Because the economy is strengthening. Because the economy is in good shape, in our opinion. And that's a, maybe a good reason to see higher yields. And again, it's why we remain yeah. overweight stocks, but underweight bonds in the models that we run for our Carson partners. Oil and gas companies printing money and nobody seems yeah. to care, in part because of ESG divestment. Ryan Dietrich, Bradley Tusk, great conversation to kick it off. Nowhere to go but down, guys. Like the, like the Patriots. Like, Thank you. Like the, go, go Chargers, by the way. All right. Yes, I'm a Chargers fan. I may be the only Chargers fan. All right, meantime, let's get to your studs and duds of the day. The biggest win of the day was Dexcom. The biggest decliner was Organon. Let's take a quick look at the future. See how things are shaping up for tomorrow, given the drops today a little bit in the red there. All right, up next. Hell hath no fury like the wrath of football fans, but is it enough to end a TV blackout? For millions, this football season begins to kick in. Plus, a last call exclusive with the head of the UAW. Can a devastating and crippling strike be avoided before next week's deadline? The interview you will not want to miss ahead. All right, welcome back. Your daily RBI is going to go rock and roll. And some pretty amazing news. The Rolling Stones are coming out with a brand new album, their first with original music in 18 years. It's called Hackney Diamonds, apparently after a British slang term for a broken windshield. The early word is that it's pretty good. In fact, judge for yourself. Here's a snippet from the first single called Angry. There you go. It's pretty cool considering these guys have been rocking for a long, long time. I mean, you know how long, but really, do you know? Mick Jagger is 80 years old. Keith Richards, 79. Ronnie Wood, he's the kid of the bunch. He's only 76. The Stones have an insane history and some massive numbers in music. They formed in 1962, 61 years ago. Their first album came out in 1964 which was simply called The Rolling Stones in England, but England's newest hit makers here in America. Since then, the Stones have put out 30 studio albums, 13 live albums, 121 singles, and 77 music videos. Nine of those albums hit number one on the charts. And of course, they've earned billions over those 60 years. Pretty amazing run for some kids from East London. You ever wonder if they like think back or thought back to the 60s and said, hey, you think we'll still be making records when we hit 80? It's hard to think that Keith said that. We're not going to argue. Anyway, I want to make a point here, and this is important. And this may be the most controversial thing I've ever said. Exile on Main Street, with the influence of the late, great Graham Parsons, is the best Stones album of all. And I'm sorry, I will not 
here. Anything else? The Rolling Stones, a new album at 80 years old, random but interesting. Meantime, see that clock? It looks like it's counting down to Saturday's big game between the Texas Longhorns and the Alabama Crimson Tide. But it's not. Instead, it's when millions of football fans across the country will likely be hyperventilating into a paper bag or yelling with rage at their TV because instead of watching one of the most anticipated college games of the year or many NFL games, many are likely to see this. The blue screen of death, if you will, for your TV. It's like a cruel joke, but it's poised to be a rude reality for nearly 15 million Spectrum cable customers. Now, Charter, which owns Spectrum, and Disney, which owns ESPN and ABC, are locked in a bitter financial battle. As we have been covering, the implications for your money and the entire media business are enormous. With both sides failing to reach a new carriage agreement, Disney channels, including the ones I just mentioned, have been blacked out on Charter Spectrum for nearly a week. But with the college and NFL seasons really kicking off this weekend, will one side have to blink? And soon. Let's talk about it with Ben Silverman. He's the chairman and co-CEO of Propagate Content, also the former co-chairman of NBC Entertainment and Universal Media Studios. So he knows a thing or two about this. Uh, Ben, good to have you on the program. We need your insight. I mean, listen, we talked about it last night and trying to explain to people, this is not just some squabble between Charter and Disney, I don't think. This could determine how all these future deals are written, and it doesn't appear the two sides are getting any closer. How do you see this playing out? Well, obviously, this is years in the making in that, you know, the moment Disney decided to go direct to consumer, it was going to undercut its relationship with its cable distribution partners and its satellite distribution partners. And I think that, you know, this is the slippery slope of linear cables, you know, accelerated demise. But at the same time, you know, they've been able to have their cake and eat it, too, for a long period of time to both have access to the subscription revenue that they share with the cable MSOs around the uh, channels that they provide and then the direct relationship that the charters and Comcast and others have with the consumer who's paying for it. And then separately as well, they've been going direct to the consumer and building their own version of a Disney bundle, in essence, that they sell at different price points, depending on whether you're getting the whole package or just one sliver of it. And I think this is a reckoning moment, unfortunately, for both of them, you know, and whether the cable MSOs and satellite providers should have partnered early with the, with the studios, just as Comcast did in acquiring NBC Universal and and buffering the kind of two two tiered play that they have, you know, selling Peacock through their own system, plus, uh, you know, covering the fees that go through Comcast to NBC and USA and CNBC yeah. and MSNBC and others. Um, but I think in general, linear cable is hurting. Uh, Charter is a real standalone, you know, versus uh, a company like Comcast. And and they're kind of pissed that that, you know, their audience is eroding as Disney goes direct to consumer uh, to to expand its own margin. D- Disney's easily got the PR upper hand. We know that you just put out an ad and say, blame your cable company because nobody really likes cable companies. But who has the upper upper hand, the actual financial upper hand? Or is this like going to be the 70s talking about nukes, mutually assured destruction? Well, I think that, you know, it's just going to be the slow demise. Right now, I'm curious, and I don't have any of these stats, and I'm sure you guys can find them out, how many of those charter consumers 
uh, those 15 million charter subscribers are also Disney Plus subscribers. Some, you know, subscribers are also ESPN Plus subscribers, are also Hulu subscribers, are also, uh, you know, subscribing to the Disney, uh, the Disney bundle uh, directly as well. And is this something that, you know, a third of them already have access to? And maybe it's not going to be as much blood in the streets on the Disney side and, and going to hurt you know, charter more uh, for blinking because they'll lose a couple more million of those subscribers or the 5 million who have both or the 2 million, whatever the numbers, uh, choose to continue with the Disney because they're going to get their television show and their sporting event. Um, So it's a really confusing moment. Uh, I think the broadband delivery that these cable companies do, the Wi-Fi, when my Wi-Fi goes out, it is is the worst event in in our in our home, you know, and so I, I think the power of these cable companies to have morphed into these kind of broadband deliverable companies makes them still incredibly valuable. But the part where they're providing this kind of content is getting trickier and trickier to sustain. Yeah. Disney may be the car, but Charter or Comcast, the highway. Ben, sort of on that note, we've got some news today on Hulu, our parent company, Comcast and the aforementioned Disney have agreed to move up the date when they can begin to negotiate the feint of Hulu. At an investor conference today, Comcast CEO Brian Roberts said Hulu is likely worth more than $30 billion. How do you see this this Comcast-Disney-Hulu situation play out? Well, everybody kind of forgets the hangover of the regulatory environment in which Comcast acquired NBC Universal, and for some reason was more aggressively legislated than many of the other mergers and acquisitions that have uh, gone on since or before then. And as part of that, they couldn't, you know, take control and and run Hulu once they had acquired uh, fully NBC Universal, which owned that stake in Hulu. And I think as you, you look forward, it seems like a valuable asset to me, you know, as an outsider, as a subscriber, they provide uh, a suite of channels if you want access to it. They provide an ad-supported tier. They provide tons of reruns, and uh, and they continue to actually deliver uh, original shows like Murders in the Building, that actually is a top ten hit within the streaming universe, which is you know tens of millions of people subscribing to it. So I, I'm I'm with Brian. This is a valuable asset. Um, who's it more yeah. valuable for is another question. And the battle that you know Comcast had with Disney to acquire Fox and Sky mm-hmm. and the price inflation they might have put into that Fox acquisition on the Disney side, as well as ending up with Sky uh, through that you know fight, shows there's no there's no loss of love between these companies yeah, and that none. they they're, they're, and they're willing to go toe to toe when it comes to winning a deal. A lot, of, a lot of changes happening in media right now. Our, our viewers may not care, but in about a year, the things could look a lot different than they will. Ben Silverman, appreciate your views. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right, on deck, a devastating potential strike hanging over the American auto industry. Will the big three and the UAW get a deal done, or will a walkout in a week really happen? The head of the UAW will join us for a broadcast exclusive next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Detroit, and really a huge part of the American economy, entering a critical week. A strike deadline is about to hit for America's auto industry. Just over a week from now, current contracts between Detroit's big three automakers and the United Auto Workers Union expire. If a new deal is not reached, 
UAW workers are authorized to strike beginning September 15th. Among the UAW's key demands, a four-day work week at full-time pay, a 46% wage increase, a share of company profits, and the return of full pensions. As of now, the automakers seem to have balked at many of those requests. A top GM executive just yesterday saying they would, quote, threaten our ability to maintain our manufacturing momentum. So the odds of an agreement being reached before the deadline aren't looking exactly good, at least right now, but there still is a week to go. So let's talk more about it and what the UAW wants and needs. And we are pleased to be joined now by UAW President Sean Fain. Mr. Fain, thank you very much for joining us. I know it's a critical time. There's things you can't say in the negotiation. But can you give us and really America an idea as to where the negotiations stand at this point? Thank you for having us, Brian. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's... Uh... You know, we're uh, down to the wire. We have eight days to go. Um, unfortunately, uh, GM uh, hasn't chose over the last month to uh, respond to our economic demands. We're still waiting, um, uh, looking like we're going to plan a meeting for tomorrow morning. So, you know, we're, we're pushing. Uh, we're available 24-7, as we have been for the last seven weeks. So it's up to the companies on where we end up and uh, whether we end up having to take action or not on the 14th. Please correct me if I'm wrong. From what I understand, you have had a counter offer from Ford. I don't think you were happy with it. I'm not sure what you can share, but we'd love to know what they offered. Have you heard from, you haven't heard from GM. Have you heard from Stellantis, which is the new name uh, for Chrysler, Dodge, and Jeep? Um, we, we had a counter offer from Ford. It was nowhere near meeting our demands. Uh, you know, it was more lump sum type things instead of guaranteed wage increases where our members continue to go further and further back. It didn't address job security initiatives, um, several factors, nothing to do with retirement security. Um, and, uh, you know, Stellantis, uh, really, we haven't heard anything as far as any response goes. So, uh, um, like I said, they were playing games with us a week ago, and that's why we chose to file ULPs. You've been a UAW member since I think you started as electrician in 1994. Is this how the negotiations generally go, Sean, that, that a week from a deadline you don't have two of three counteroffers? Well, the, the unfortunate part is we, we, we've up, up front, we told the companies that we expected to do things differently than in the past. In the past, you know, we pick a target. Um, the company delays until the last week before the deadline. Then they, so they drag things out. The other two companies sit and wait. We've told all three of the companies up front before this started, we weren't going to do things the way we've always done them. The September 14th is a deadline, not a reference point. We expect all three companies to have an agreement by then, and it was in their best interest to sit down with us and get down to business from day one. They chose to follow the same path they have in the past, which is delay, delay, delay. They've waited now to the last eight days to want to start talking. So we got a lot of work to do. We can get there. Um, our goal is not to strike. Our goal is to get a, an equitable agreement for our members. And if we get there, we'll be fine. If not, then we're going to have to take action. You know, Sean, we've never met. You look like a nice guy remotely from here, but I've seen some of your talks. you got fiery rhetoric. You're blasting Eminem at some of your speeches. Do, and, and, and you get the, the membership fired up. Do you worry, though, that some, like filing the, the National Labor Relations Board complaint like you did uh, earlier this week or blasting some of these lyrics with the fiery rhetoric, do you feel like that will cause a tension that might set the other side off? Well, there's a tension already. Our members are fired up because they've watched the corporations make a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last decade as we've went backwards. We've lost money. Um, you know, they've made $21 billion the first six months of this year. Um, what, what, what angers me is to hear the corporations talk about how workers being treated fairly is going to drive up the cost of vehicles. Um, in the last four years, the cost of vehicles went up 30 uh, percent. Our wages went up 6 percent. Uh, corporate CEO pay went up 40 percent. 
while these corporations have been making billions of dollars in money in, in profits. So this boils down to one thing. It's corporate greed. It's not our contracts. It's not our members' demands. It's corporate greed. And that needs to change in this country. We need to turn that around. Uh, you're not kidding about the price of cars, Sean. It's something we talk about a lot, that 30% jump. I'm surprised it's not higher. Spent a lot of time in Michigan this summer. Got a lot of friends there on both sides. And do you see these profits? I worry that the profits and the price of cars was kind of a temporary pandemic supply chain related pop. Or do you guys, it sounds like you feel this type of price, a $75,000 pickup, is the new normal. And you're trying to ask for wages and benefits that are going to be based on those prices going forward. In other words, do you feel like you worry that car prices may drop? I, I believe it's price gouging. I believe it's corporate greed, as I said. Um, our member, a lot of our members, that's what I want people to understand. A lot of our members can't even afford to buy what we build now because of the low wage and because we went backwards. That's why we want to end tiers. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just believe that, uh, you know, uh, we, we hear a lot about concern for the consumer. We're concerned about the consumer. We want, be able to, we want people to buy our product, um, but, you know, people have to be able to afford that. And uh, to me, the companies, you know, we can talk about st- supply chain all they want to talk about. I think a lot of this was was uh, an exploitation of a circumstance. And I, I believe that corporate greed is driving a lot of this pricing. Yeah. And, you know, Sean, I think I'm, I'm going to guess because we do speak. Obviously, we're CNBC. We speak with the CEOs. Many of them, maybe the executives are probably watching this interview right now. What they will argue, I guarantee it, is that if they give you the 40 to 46 percent jumps, the, the profit sharing, that the price of cars will go even higher. Is that is there any well, credibility or is that B.S.? No, it's BS, and that's that's their common excuse. Everything that happens, they want to blame on the workers, just as in the economic recession. We never talk about the bad decisions that companies make, like when Ford buys companies for billions and sells them for pennies on the dollars. Bad management is what causes these problems, not the workers. And as I just said, the last four years, vehicle prices have went up 30%. Our wages went up 6%. So our wages aren't the problem. Our conditions aren't the problem. It's corporate greed. Do you feel like, and obviously the the, the electric vehicle, uh, I don't know what we call it, a transition, evolution, revolution, Sean, I'd love to hear your term for it. Obviously, they're all in. We just got $12 billion more in taxpayer subsidies from the White House uh, for battery and battery plants and electric vehicle plants, most of which are down south. How does the EV transition and build out, because none of these cars, by the way, are making any money. They're losing tens of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars on every car. I got. I guess they got to make it up with the other cars they can sell for a profit. How does that factor into all your thinking and your negotiation? Well, we, we support a green economy. Uh, we have to have clean air, clean water. Um, we always have. Uh, but we don't support a race to the bottom. And so when we talk about the EV transition, we say it has to be a just transition. Our tax dollars, billions of our tax dollars, are funding this transition. And when you look at the big three, 20% of our workers work in powertrains. So if we go away from the internal combustible engine and solely go to battery, our members have to have a place to fall. And so, you know, there's a lot of work to do in that area. Um, We want those jobs to be at at UAW standards, Um, not a race to the bottom, such as in an Altium where they started people out at 1650 an hour and taken seven years to get to 20. Now, that's not a living, and that's not a standard that anyone in America wants to follow. So we've got a lot of work to do there, and uh, we're going to fight like hell to uh, deliver. Can you give us an idea, Sean, and I, you don't have to be perfect on it, but if you're building a gas-powered Mustang and you're building the Mustang Mach-E, does it require 
fewer of your members on the Mach-E. What, what's the difference in the manufacturing need for both of those types of cars? Well, it depends on the on the choice the companies make when it comes to all the all the all the parts and things that go into it. I mean, there's a lot of other uh, 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 work that goes into the battery vehicles. Uh, if they choose to exploit low wage workers in Mexico and other places, then obviously, yeah, it's going to be it's a it's a major concern. Um, uh, we we believe you know the transition can work uh, for us, but um, we we need to bring that standard up. Um, you know, and you look at the. You know, you look at the uh, the Tesla model that they want to talk about so much. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, they weren't profitable for years, but they knew that in the the end game they would make massive profits, which is where they are now. And and you know, our government now is subsidizing this for the big three and other companies. So, uh, you know, you look at an Altium alone, that plant's going to get 1.2 billion dollars a quarter, or I'm sorry, annually in uh, tax credits, you know, when they're at full production. Some of these blue oval plants that Ford's yeah. putting in the battery plants are gonna be recognized in almost $4 billion a year in tax credits. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of money, and that's taxpayers funding this, and those jobs, it should be a just transition where labor can't be left behind. So they should be good paying jobs that are set at, at our standards, not, not, not low wage standards where people make $45 a week, such as in Mexico. Yeah, your members are taxpayers, too. So in many ways, your members are kind of funding it on, on the back end like the, like the rest of the country. I'm going to wrap it up, and I hate to go into politics. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ugly world out there, Sean. But it is relevant here. I want to ask you this. Yeah. You guys, I think, have withheld your, your endorsement so far for President Biden in a second term. Um, do you worry? He said, he, you know, I'm super pro-union. Uh, President Biden, do you worry? Uh, and does it go into your thinking that a strike could embarrass President Biden? I don't think a strike would embarrass President Biden. I think uh, a strike can reaffirm to him of where the working class people in this country stand. And, and you know, it's time for politicians in this country to pick a side. Either you stand for a billionaire class where everybody else gets left behind or you stand for the working class. Uh, the working class people vote, um, you know, and, and as far as our endorsements go, um, you know, as we said, our endorsements are going to be earned, not freely given. And uh, actions are going to dictate who we endorse. Um, and I know. The other candidate, you know, wanted to come out the other day and talk about how our members are crazy for not not backing him. But, uh, you know, there, there's two things I want to talk about with that person real quick, if I can have a moment. It's just I, I'll never forget leading up to the 16 election, that candidate talking about doing a rotation where they need to come to places like Michigan and the Midwest and send our jobs somewhere else where they pay less money and make us be begging for our jobs down the road. Uh, that's not something that works for uh, working class people and sure as hell not for UAW workers. And and he was on the, on the air the other day saying that uh, encouraging people to stop paying union dues. So that's not someone that stands mm. for a good standard of living. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, Sean, we're going to go there, but uh, I don't need to tell you this, but I, I would argue that, that you've got some other leverage that Michigan is probably the most important swing state in the United States next year. You guys matter. Got a lot of friends on both sides. Wishing everybody there the best of luck, Sean. Let us know how things go. Thank you for joining us on CNBC and Last Call. Thank you, Brian. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Up next, the story really setting CNBC.com on fire. Ace reporter Alex Sherman's got a deep dive into Disney and what exactly happened between Bob Iger and former CEO Bob Chapek. You thought you knew what happened before, but now we've got the real story and it involves two showers a day. How's that for a tease? We'll have it for you when we come back.
All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. First up, there's a big storm gaining strength in the Atlantic. Lee has escalated from a tropical storm into a hurricane. The National Hurricane Center says Lee is, quote, likely to rapidly intensify into an extremely dangerous major hurricane by Saturday. The storm is expected to pass near the U.S. Virgin Islands along with Puerto Rico this weekend. Many models project it turning into a Category 4 or even Category 5 hurricane. Current projections do not have it making landfall anytime soon. Next up, ChargePoint taking a nasty jolt into the red after results. The company, a huge player, of course, in what we just talked about, EV charging. But deepening losses came as unexpected surprise and unwelcome surprise to investors. ChargePoint also cutting its workforce by about 10%. Revenue did jump about 39%, however, from a year ago. Tough time to be a charging network, especially if you are not the Tesla charging network. All right, next up, C3 AI. This is actually one of the hottest artificial intelligence trades this year, and it's losing some steam after results. It is warning of a larger than expected operating loss for the year. It is also withdrawing a previous forecast that it would be profitable by the end of fiscal 2024. Unsurprisingly, shares of C3 AI are down about 7% on that. By the way, regardless the CEO still feeling optimistic. Here is Tom Siebel on closing bell overtime earlier. We look at our pipeline of opportunities that go out the next 12 months. Uh, the, 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 the pipeline for the product that is the longest is substantially generative AI. Also happening, the Senate has narrowly confirmed Federal Reserve Governor Lisa Cook to a full 14-year term. South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds cast the sole Republican vote in her favor. Cook is the first black woman to serve on the governing board of the U.S. Central Bank. All right, coming up here on Last Call, oil and gas prices beginning to roar higher. Could another meeting between President Biden and Saudi Arabia's crown prince change it? Ali McCroft up next on a huge few days for geopolitics ahead. All right, welcome back. Let's step back in time to maybe the fist bump heard around the world. In July of last year, President Biden traveled to Saudi Arabia to meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Remember that? This despite being very critical of MBS in the past, at one point calling him a, quote, pariah. The president needed to talk to the Saudis and maybe get help with oil prices. So did the strategy just over a year ago work? Well, yes and no. The price of oil is slightly lower than it was during that meeting. But it has now also been shifting higher over the past month as Saudi Arabia and Russia extend their voluntary oil output cuts by combined 1.3 million barrels a day. So tensions may once again be running higher. All this as Biden and his team head to India for a critical G20 meeting. Let's tie it all together. Joining us now is RBC Capital Markets Managing Director and CNBC contributor Halima Croft. Halima, we don't know if President Biden will meet with Crown Prince bin Salman, but if you had to bet on it, what would be the bet? I mean, certainly his team has been meeting with senior Saudi officials. Jake Sullivan was in Saudi Arabia last month. You don't send Jake Sullivan unless you are actually engaged in serious diplomatic discussions about some grand bargain. Now, Axios is reporting that Biden is likely to meet the Crown Prince. We just have to see. But again, there is a lot of shuttle diplomacy between Washington and Riyadh in an attempt to get some type of grand bargain that would include potentially Israel normalization, 
assistance on a Saudi civilian nuclear program, new security guarantees, and of course, energy assistance. Do you think if the U.S. was willing to give up some or all of those concessions, Halima, that the Crown Prince and Saudi Aramco would then agree to either end its one million barrel per day extra cut or maybe add more barrels directly to the market? I mean, there have been signals in the past that the Saudis have indicated that if their terms were met, that they could talk about additional assistance when it comes to oil. And the Saudis said in their statement yesterday that they are going to be reviewing this you know, unilateral cut every month. So it's going to run through December, but it will be up for review. But I think the challenge is going to be, even if President Biden wanted to sign on the dotted line, he also has to deal with Congress. And the question is, can you mollify congressional Democrats who might raise issues about a deal like this? And even though Republicans, I think, have been more broadly supportive of Saudi Arabia, I think you could hear the reprisal of, why are you not supporting the domestic oil and gas industry and going abroad seeking barrels? So the politics of this could be challenging for President Biden, but I think he believes it's important enough that they are continuing this diplomatic effort. Are you surprised by the level of Russian oil that is still on the market? The price cap appears to have worked in many ways, but the amount of Russian ships or ships filled with Russian crude uh, has been pretty consistent, Halima. Well, I mean, certainly Russian production is down from the start of the year. But remember, Brian, the design of price caps was to keep Russian oil on the market. And so, yes, we have seen Russian production trending down, you know, 700,000 barrels lower since the start of the year. But again, it was not a sanctioned regime designed to take Russian oil off the market immediately. Some of the sanctions, like on the provision of technology for the oil and gas sector, will cause the production to come down over time. But we did not do to Russia what we did to Iran. We didn't seek to take them out of the oil market. In fact, we've encouraged traders to take Russian barrels. You had a note, Halima. Normally we talk about like really serious geopolitical stuff with you uh, on how much you noted how much the Saudis have been spending on soccer players. Yeah. I mean, I, I know it's not directly related, but the level of spending is is eye-opening, does it tell a larger story of some kind? No, I think it's an incredible story about Vision 2030, and sports are a key part of Vision 2030. I think it's a lot about what the domestic Saudi population wants, but just think it's not just soccer. It's not just the $1 billion they have spent so far in the summer transfer window for Europe's finest soccer players. It's also the live PGA merger. And so I think, you know, if we think out over the next couple of years, Vision 2030 is something that is front and center in terms of all policy. And it comes with a very significant price tag. But the Saudis have shown that they are not going to back off in terms of delivering on what their domestic population wants. And they want sports and they want entertainment. Yeah. And they're spending, a, I mean, hundreds, probably over a, a billion, I think is the number all in. Halima Croft, uh, always value your insight. I'm sure we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, always. It is time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, the best of the rest of the headlines, and apparently a dog that just wants to ride the lightning. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Tom Brady partnering with Delta Airlines. He made the announcement with Delta CEO on CNBC earlier today. I've got, I 
think a, lo a, a long second career ahead and is a great way to kick it off. Brady will become a long-term strategic advisor for the airline, whatever that means, for an undisclosed sum, which we are sure is a lot. The Northern Hemisphere just recording its hottest summer ever. The world's oceans, also the hottest ever recorded this year so far. The second hottest total year on record behind 2016. The Wall Street Journal's new college rankings, they're out. Princeton topping the list for high graduation rates and salaries post-graduation. MIT and Yale round out the top three. Sometimes a dog just got a rock. Canine in Los Angeles snuck out of her house near SoFi Stadium, made her way to the venue's Metallica show that night. The band posted about it on X. Don't worry, Storm, the dog, safely reunited with her family the next day. And the bell's rung, we're out. For whom the bell tolls? It tolls for us. All right, coming up, a deep dive into what went wrong at Disney. The story involves dysfunction, big egos, and two showers a day. What's next? All right, welcome back. Backstabbing, air kissing, egos, two showers a day. And that's not just the last call production team. <laughs> just some of the many details about the feuding bobs of the House of Mouse. It's all laid out in a long but fantastic piece by CNBC's Alex Sherman, which has topped CNBC.com the entire day, which is not easy to do with basically, Alex, and I mean this with love, a, a small book. I mean, this. how long, first off, did you research this? It's fantastic. And what was the most surprising thing you found in your research? I initially had the idea to do this, Brian, back in January. Uh, Bob Chapek was fired in late November, and I figured to start off the new year, it would be nice to know exactly what happened there because Disney didn't give a coherent explanation for it. Certainly several uh, of Chapek's gaffes, you could say, his communications errors with Don't Say Gay and how they dealt with the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit related to her movie Black Widow had been publicized, but it seemed to come a little bit quick. Like Disney had one bad quarter and then Chapek was out of the job. And there was a little reporting about what went down sort of in that fourth quarter, but not really a full coherent story about exactly why Chapek was fired and really how this whole succession plan blew up. And then Bob Iger was back as the CEO and he's gonna have to do this whole succession thing all over again. So the reporting and writing really heated up over the past three months or so as I spoke to more than 25 different people mm. who worked directly with Iger and Chapek uh, during the Bob Chapek tenure as CEO. Yeah, you know, and, and we forget, we talked a lot about this, this fight with Florida and Disney and Governor Ron DeSantis, and, and that was when Chapek was CEO, when all that kicked off, not Iger. Do you think that played a role? Was there something else? Or is, is there a possibility this was just Bob Iger being bored and saying, I want to go back? So I'll and answer a your previous money. question, which I didn't get to in the answer to this one, which was what surprised me the most. What had not been reported and what very much surprised me was that at the end of the Bob Chapek regime, there was basically a coup d'etat among senior Disney executives against Chapek. That had never been reported. I certainly had no idea. But what happened was 
many of the members of the Disney executive senior leadership team, whether it was Chapek's own hand-picked head of communications or the head of investor relations or the general counsel or the chief uh, financial officer, uh, the, the Dana Walden, who runs the TV division, Josh Damaro, who runs the parks, Alan Bergman, who runs the movie studio. Like, almost all of those people had meetings with the board and said, mm -hmm. you know what, we've lost confidence in this guy. And so it's more than just one bad quarter, which was kind yeah. of what came out initially. It was this full loss of confidence in the Disney leadership team that led to Chapek's firing, Could much more so than Ron DeSantis or, or Don't Say Gay. 45 seconds left in the show. Tell us about the shower in the office, the two showers a day. Yeah, you referenced it. I, I better follow through. Bob <laughs> Iger has a private bathroom. Uh, one source of mine who has seen the shower called it spectacular. And so he wanted to keep his office when Bob Chapek was named CEO. The board came, suggested that Chapek take over Bob Iger's office, which was bigger, as a ceremonial changing of the guard. Iger said, no, I want to keep the office because I use this shower. I wake up really early in the morning, I work out, and then I take a shower at home, then I come to the office and I go to these Hollywood yeah. events <laughs> and I like to take a second shower before going to these events. Bob Chapek wasn't the same That's type it. of Hollywood schmoozer, so I, Iger basically said, I want the shower, you don't need it, let me keep it, and he that, did. That shower's real and it's spectacular. Alex Sherman, spectacular piece, thank you. Thanks for watching, everybody. See you tomorrow.